All right, welcome to Office Hours. This is where students in an online program can have a little bit of the experience of sitting in a professor's office and talking and learning from people who've been in the field for a while. Today I have a wonderful guest. Her name is Saburn Fisher. Can you say hello? Hi. Hi, Jordan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So glad to be here. Awesome. And you specialize in neurofeedback. Is that right? I do. Yes, I do. Okay. Now, um, we have talked a little bit about neurofeedback in this um, podcast, but I was hoping you could give me um, a, a brief overview because there are many different um, methods in this, in this specialization, right? Uh, mm -hmm. About how you do neurofeedback, how, what is your approach, and then the, the clientele that, that you work with. Sure. Um, my um, client population are people who have suffered developmental trauma. Uh, as we now understand it, this devastating disorganization of the brain and mind and body that occur when children are neglected and abused and assaulted. I typically see um, these kids as grown-ups, although for many years I was the clinical director of a residential treatment program for severely disturbed adolescents. And it was during that time uh, when I was facing a lot of treatment failures, even though we had one of the best programs in the state of Massachusetts, uh, that I um, accepted an invitation from a friend of mine to go to, to try this odd thing called neurofeedback. This is actually almost exactly 22 years ago. And um, it, it, uh, I had no idea what she, what she was talking about when she said to me that um, these kids might be able to regulate themselves by playing video games with their brains. This felt to me like um, a preposterous notion. At, but she was getting a system. She's a friend of mine. And she asked me if I'd try it. So I said, well, I'm sure. Um, I mean, this is probably nothing. Uh, so I was skeptical. I was open but skeptical, and I went and did neurofeedback with her, which is really um, putting one or two, typically one or two, electrodes on the head and and asking you to rewarding the brain when it plays a game that correlates to a certain frequency that you want the brain to make. So one of those frequencies uh, might be um, alpha, 8 to 11 hertz, and that tends to be quite calming. So, um, but I, I was training, because this is what was available at that time, something called SMR or 12 to 15 hertz. So every time my brain happened to cross 12 to 15 hertz, I would get a reward in the game. And um, by the end of that weekend, I was a changed person. I, too, had suffered developmental trauma, um, and um, I had never lived without the sense of ambient fear, and it's that that I talk a great deal about in the, in the book, because that, it, it was, it, I never would have, I, I doubt that I would have gotten into the field of neurofeedback, um, even as desperate as I was to help these kids and how untreatable they were, typically. Um, uh, if I had just gone to a workshop or, sadly, listened to a good a webinar, right, a, a good interview or blog, um, 
I only would get into it when I had such profound effects for myself. And I write about that in the introduction to the book, and it's a story. So I won't go into all that in our, in our time. So I work with a traumatized population. I got into this field um, in that way. And I, I follow a model called the arousal regulation model, which is very similar to what we do as psychotherapists. Um, which is to how can we help this person regulate themselves and quiet their affect, what usually most salience is fear, terror, um, shame is a huge problem in, in our population. Shamelessness is a, is a problem in the antisocial, <laughs> we were talking about earlier, um, and the... Um, uh, and rage is obviously a huge problem. And all of these feelings and emotions ride uh, waveforms in the brain, different waveforms in different people. And what you're trying to do is to find out how you can be in a dialogue with training with this brain and find where it can find some peace with itself. And you'll see changes in the body. You'll see changes in posture. You'll see changes in affect. Uh, often changes in things like vocabulary or uh, sleep. Um, I mean, you know, there it's the as I'm fond of saying that the brain knows nothing of the DSM. It has, doesn't even know anything about big differences between the body and the and the the brain. Right? It's all it's a processing. I don't want to make this too much like computers because it's so much not that, but it is a, it is the learning organ of the brain. So um, how do we teach it and or how can we engage it in learning? I think it's a better way to talk about it. And that's biofeedback to the frequency domain of brain function. Yeah. That's, that was a long answer to a reasonably short question. I, I, I hope that covers the basis. No, I think that's a really good introduction, especially because uh, in my own training, I've, I had never heard of neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember very specifically, I have a buddy who's a medical psych, psychologist, um, and he was talking about how when he was going through his initial training, he went through a biofeedback course and learned to control migraines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had just had another coworker talking about how she relentlessly had these migraines. And I was like, if this is something that we know works, um, why is it not even talked about? Right. And then I, then I heard uh, Bessel talk about um, neurofeedback, um, Bessel van der Kolk, um, and how it was developed like in like the 50s and 60s. And mm-hmm. you can see... Um, uh, he was talking about a study in Australia with um, military people being deployed. And before each deployment, they would get tested. And you could see basically over time, the prefrontal cortex going, I think, into Delta. So slower waves, right? Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. limbic area is going into um, higher, more erratic. And he's like, they're basically asleep, right? The, the thinking part of their brain is asleep. And I, and I thought to myself, Wait, like we already know this, but no one's talking. Like, how is this possible? Right. Nice, it seemed right. absurd, you know. It seemed absurd. Well, um, it, it's it's tragic in a way. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the first 
clinical use of neurofeedback was with seizures. Right. Um, and still people will have brain surgery and never know that, that you could possibly control this by using biofeedback, but you can. And there were, the, the test that was done was originally cats. And as far as we know, cats can't have a placebo effect. And they were able to shorten their, or uh, change their threshold, uh, actually um, make the threshold higher to seizures with feedback, with brainwave feedback. And then eventually they used it for people coming and, and they were in the, um, they were on the neurosurgery uh, calendar at UCLA and they volunteered to come and try this weird thing where they would train their brains and uh, every single one of, not one of them had psychosurgery after the training. And most of them learned to control the seizures by themselves. But even those who needed medication needed very little of it. And medication hadn't helped them before. Obviously, they wouldn't have been ready to have psychosurgery. So this is a terribly, uh, uh, this is terrible that this isn't well known. And this should be taught in every medical school. It shouldn't be up to you to have people, uh, you know, to have our little private conversations that hopefully will go viral, but probably won't. You know, where where we get to discuss this incredible breakthrough in mental health, but in a lot of physical conditions as well. Yeah, I think that um, the it is it is. It is mind blowing, and I think also on a personal level, I have there's a little girl who goes to my church, uh, and they have her on seizure medication because she's adopted, and so she has a few things that aren't quite um, normal. I guess you would say I don't know a better word, and she has seizures. Mm-hmm. And between that sort of medication, and the doctor basically said, you know, this medication um, blunts IQ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And knowing that, and then knowing the side effects of many psychotropic drugs, which if you're on a psychotropic drug and it really does help, like I want you to keep doing what what works. But I've known plenty of people who have had negative effects from these drugs, and then you find something like this, which has a relatively you know um, small downside, a huge mm-hmm. potential upside. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to think, like, like, why is this not being talked about more? Right. You know, right? I mean, what we're doing here is appealing to the, the brain's ability to learn regulation, and we're counting on all brains having an inherent desire, as it were, to regulate themselves. They're devoted to their own way. A brain is devoted to its regulation because it has to be. That's what brains do. And we're off on these errant paths and that we could call it, uh, you know, uh, PTSD or flashback or seizure or, or um, you know, tantrums or, I mean, all, all, everything, you know, everything is, uh, has a component in this frequency domain of the brain. And so um, we can, and, and not, this doesn't help everybody, but the vast majority of people, it helps really significantly. Um, and there are actually, there are YouTube videos you might want to attach to, to this. There's a, mm-hmm. a video, I think it's called The Wild Child, and, but it's a Australian, it's a child in Australia 
who is about to go to residential treatment in a juvenile detention center, actually, because he's attacked his mother so often and the police have come so often. So, you know, we know these kids uh, and they are out of control and they are dangerous to others and dangerous to themselves. Um, and the, this kid is, you see him before uh, neurofeedback and you see him after 80 sessions of neurofeedback and you wouldn't know you were really looking at the same kid. And, and he's happy and so are we. <laughs> and so is the world. Yeah, I think one of, you know, I haven't studied nearly as much as you have, but I studied a little bit about the science of emotions. Um, and one of the things that we know is, you know, no emotion is necessarily inherently bad, but we call them bad because they feel bad, right? People don't like to be stuck in anger. Mm -hmm. People don't like to be stuck in fear. Um, people like to experience joy, you know? Um, and for me, that was one of that. I just, that was something that was so um, amazing. Cause you, at least where I work in some of my jobs, people say, you know, they just like, they just want to do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And I think that the science and talking to people says, no, mm -hmm. people that we're dealing with are deeply afraid. Um, and I would say predominantly shamed and mm -hmm. shameful about themselves. Mm -hmm. And the only way they know how to deal with this and I mean, no, as in experientially, right, not like right. cognitively. You're on it. Or, You're on to it. Yeah, you, yeah, uh, you know. Is to do these behaviors that we as society say are bad, which only reinforces the cycle, you know. Right. Um, right. You may have seen the Oprah interview where she said that the question needs to change from uh, what, what, why did Oprah's you do that? Oprah 20 years late. Like Vincent Felipe was talking about that, you know, in the, in the 80s, right? Like. Right, I know. She's so, <laughs> I know, it's amazing that she took so long to find it. But anyway, it's still not the question that most people ask, and no, she no. will help. She will help that. Yeah, um, I think right. you've hit on something that I think is really important, which is the whole notion of stuckness, because I think that's the problem. You know, we get, the brains get into certain loops. They get stuck in certain patterns of um, activity and um, neurofeedback is a way to help them get unstuck. Um, and it, 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 it suggests a whole, it suggests that neuroplasticity, which we talk a lot about, is in the frequency domain of the brain. We know it's not in the chemical part, domain of the brain because we provide chemicals and they don't create brain change. They create sedation or they create, they help people attend. But they're always, always uh, toxic. They're, the liver is always in a battle to get rid of these things. You know, um, uh, there isn't a psychotropic drug that isn't toxic. There are psychotropic drugs that, that do help and that in the interim may be very useful. Um, so, um, but they should be an interim solution until the brain learns its own way to regulate. And, and that, that can take a, a long time or it can happen very quickly. It's, it's uh, and we don't know all the reasons for the differences. Yeah, I think one of the things that I found enlightening as I started reading your book, I'm only halfway through, is uh, you make a complete switch. You know, we're, we're taught so much the neurochemical reasons for any number of um, DSM sort of labels, right? Mm -hmm. Which personally I'm skeptic about because I've read history 
And, you know, about every 50 years, <laughs> everything changes anyway. Right. Um, but the idea that um, what, is, what, is, what is wrong is a misfiring, right? Or, mm-hmm. a, um, or in some way, the rhythms of occurrence that are going between synapses is off. That is the issue more than a neurochemical imbalance. Right. These are, these are, yes, I agree with you. What, what is, these are co-arising domains. We can't get the, we can't get the firing without the chemicals and or the neurotransmitters and we can't get the, um, uh, the, um, we can't get appropriate levels of neurotransmitters without appropriate firing. So there's, so where's the, where is the advantageous place to intervene and the profitable place to intervene is chemical. I mean, I think it's uh, $8 billion on just on atypical antipsychotics in children under 18. Really? Really? Um, and so the, uh, but the, the, the plasticity, as I was saying a moment ago, really resides in the, in the, uh, um, electrical domain, and so the better place, the more uh, brain friendly and person friendly place to to offer the brain its opportunity to regulation is in in brain refraining. And I would say that there, it has it has a couple of other advantages. One is you have to assess every session because you have to assess how the person is responding, and that uh, teenage boys are going to engage in this treatment, which they hardly, you know, they hardly engage in any treatment, typically. So, um, and they'll feel themselves, and, it won't, and, and uh, the, the, the conversation will be often, you know, what do you want to get better at? What's, you know, so let's just take, you know, a typical adolescent and might say, I want to get better at basketball. So I said, okay, um, then let's keep measuring your free throws. Tell me how we're going to measure the organization of this nervous system via free throws. You take out the stigma, you take out the sick, you know, the whole mental illness piece. You know, when you think about the DSM, it's dismissible based on one. It really is a tautology. The, the 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 DSM is has you know among many disorders it has oppositional defiant disorder. So what is that? That is a kid who's oppositional and defiant. So now we know what do we know now? By now that they've been called, <laughs> they've gotten a disorder name after it. You've got an insurance code, and that's really it. When you look more deeply into this person, you'll find that their brain isn't functioning optimally and we can help them in the vast majority of cases. Yeah, I'm actually, um, I also blog a little bit about this for my students and I'm, I'm writing about this now. And the example that I'm using is um, arthritis. I've been told that I have arthritis in my knee and I looked up what, 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 what arthritis means and it means pain. Which is crazy because I went to my doctor and I said, hey, I'm having this pain in my knee. And he says, well, it's arthritis. So what you're saying is the pain in my knee is caused by the pain in my knee. You haven't told me anything. (laughs) And I think you talk about depression. 
you know, mm-hmm. people have, you know, overwhelming sadness and, and hope and helplessness. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. is that caused by depression? Well, that's the definition of depression. So right. can't right. get into that circular sort of. Right. Um, right. But I do want to expand a little bit and back up because I think the thing that is most fascinating as I began to read your book was um, you worked for a long time with very, very difficult children. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that work? Because I think that that sort of clientele would really resonate with a lot of the people who listen to this. Yeah, sure. Um, I worked with um, both residential and foster care kids. So kids who were um, in, in Western Massachusetts, um, there was a consent decree, which meant that kids had to be in facilities with in the least amount of constraint, right? So um, our facility was open, and we had the kids otherwise would have been under lock and key. I mean, they were, they were aggressive. They were dissociative. Uh, we had, it was not, it was not always understood, but it was not all that uncommon for us to have kids with DID. Um, we had, um, so antisocial kids and sex offenders. Now I worked with all of these kids, um, to the extent that we could, and they would age out at 18. They, the state wouldn't pay for them anymore. And what happened then was that in, in the vast majority of cases, they would end up on clinical role somewhere else. So they would have, um, stolen a car and one kid stole a car that had a baby in it and they hadn't noticed there was a baby in it, you know? So, you know, that's what we, with all of our best efforts, that's still what would go on. And, um, so, um, and you know what, we would often be able to see these kids twice a week. These are not circumstances that are available anymore. So, uh, they end up being in the adult mental health system and many die in it. Yeah, I am. Um, I work on a on on a suicide, not a suicide, and an inpatient hospital, and a lot of the people that we see are there for suicide and for other issues. Mm-hmm. Talking about this, I keep thinking these are the people that I'm that I'm seeing. Um, you know, these are the clients that I regularly see, and um, I I seriously think about how can I help these people. Mm-hmm. Um, because my heart breaks because I know that a lot of them have been in the system in some way before, and obviously it, it wasn't helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's it, psychotherapy is when you're so overwhelmed by terror, there's no indication that you can really um, receive or participate in psychotherapy. You know, it's really can I? I'll do anything not to feel so bad. I, including killing myself. I'll do headbanging. I'll cut myself. I'll burn myself. Anything but to feel so terrible as I feel. And I have enormous empathy for this. I don't think there's any disease that's worse than that, what we think of as mental illness. I, I, I think people suffer about as terribly as with any disease. And they're most of them going to live with this for a good deal of time. 
I mean, you know, there are acute people who have acute episodes of depression or anxiety or it's situational. But the kind of people that you and I are talking about, people who have had uh, this uh, severe neglect and abuse in, uh, in childhood, uh, their nervous systems are set off on a track that has only to do with survival. Ruth Lanius is a, a researcher in, on trauma in um, uh, Canada. And uh, she said that uh, just recently in investigating trauma deeply with neurofeedback and with fMRI, she said there's not one part of the, of the human brain that is not affected by developmental trauma. Uh, from the sense of balance to the sense of self, from the cortex to the brainstem. So it's all, and, and, and none of it looks the same as those who were not abused. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really important. And, uh, and she's also said recently, she was interviewed by someone who said, come on, tell me what the therapy is that you would use for trauma. And she said, I, the, the therapy, the psychotherapy that I use is going to depend, be dependent on the patient. But I wouldn't do any psychotherapy now without neurofeedback. And that's the way I feel, you know, with, with people who have had no opportunity interpersonally to regulate their brains, to develop a prefrontal cortex, to, for that matter, to develop even earlier systems in the brain, like the cerebellum. Many people don't have no experience of being held at the back of their heads, rocked or, or, or cherished in any way, you know, and they don't have any memory of that. And that's, um, it is my sense that, that it's, it's my firm belief that the gift of a good enough mother is affect regulation. That's what our mothers do for us. And when they, uh, when that happens, that's the gift going forward. So you have good enough affect regulation. You had good enough mothering. When that hasn't happened, uh, that's when neurofeedback comes into play to help the nervous system learn that, uh, or learn to regulate itself and to lower its affective load. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that was fascinating reading through the book is. Uh, you basically say the problem or you know somebody can do well in therapy if they can use the relationship. Mm-hmm. And the people that uh, we're dealing with, the people who are chronically in the mental health system, um, part of the problem is, is not that the therapist um, doesn't have the right tools. The person doesn't have the ability to receive the therapy. They don't have that relationship, that model of a healthy attachment figure. Um, which is the sort of box to put in all the things that the therapist is attempting to do. Not only do they not have the model, which they don't, they don't have the brain structures. So when you look at a part of the brain called the default mode network, which is getting a lot of attention now, it is a structure right down the center of the brain um, that helps to regulate the amygdala. It helps to quiet fear circuits but it is also um, the the self system. And when you, you can look at there's a picture when we go to the second half, if you can, you can put it on the screen because it's in the book um, of the default mode network of people who have had good enough parenting, right? 
and those who have, have, have had a dearth of parenting. And the default mode network is all full of, of connectivity, there's blood flow in those that are, they're in a scanner, they have had some tasks to do, and then they are told that they can just rest. And when people don't have a task and they have a functioning default mode network, uh, the self-other system, they start thinking about themselves. And they start typically to think about themselves in relationship. So when you look at that picture, what you see is, is and people in a scanner, the, the, the uh, below the line is people who there's no blood flow. There's no connectivity. That whole default mode network is not happening. And so um, there is no structure in the brain for self and other. And as therapists, we have to wonder if that structure doesn't occur in the brain, who are we in the office with? And who are they in the office with? It's really a mystery. But there's no, in, in one of the interviews that Bessel did of one of my patients, she said, I thought Seaburn was on my side. I knew that. I knew she cared about me, but it was, uh, but I didn't really know she was there. Now, I didn't okay. tell her to say that. You know, that's just the reality. You know, people who, and you don't have to be dissociative, although it helps not to, to but it's, it's all the same problem that that part of the brain is not well organized. So there's no brain structure for me and you, I and thou don't exist in that person's brain. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the thing that is, uh, that, I, that I bump up with, I bump, I bump up against in that is, um, I, I feel like some people do really wonderful work. Right. And so I think mm -hmm. about people, you know, I think, um, Ryan's, Ryan's a big fan of Peter Levine. Oh yeah. You know, and his, me too, Ryan. Yeah. And his, we were born um, on the same day, a, a few blocks away from each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, I, in my opinion, a lot of what he's doing is helping people to regulate, you know, feel that, where do you feel it? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but it seems like you're saying that the people who you work with and you worked with are even beyond that. Well, beyond Peter, I don't know if anyone's beyond Peter because, <laughs> so, you know, but he's almost a shaman. Um, but Peter has said recently that uh, the future of trauma, and I'm really talking about trauma, right? The future of trauma therapy is somatic experiencing and neurofeedback. And, and so we... Wow. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. No, no. He knows that the, you know, the brain has to regulate itself too or it gets into these loops. Um, but, um, uh, no, I think when you, when you really look at that data, you look at that photo, which to, I mean, that fMRI slide, which is to me the most, the saddest slide in the world. So it's really in the middle of the book in the color section. Yeah. I found uh, it. I'll, I'll, um, I'll put it up in the, in the show notes. So it'll be okay. really obvious. You can okay, take, good. take a long look at it. Then, uh, you know, the, the, um, it's sort of indisputable. Now that those are those are I don't know sixteen I can't remember what the number is but sixteen and patients and they're the people having the biggest struggle. 
So that's not going to look like that for everybody who could be seen as having suffered development or did in fact suffer developmental trauma. There, there will be different extents of that. But to make the point that people on the fMRI, they don't have an eye to go to. If they don't have an eye me to go to, they don't have a you to go to. They don't have a theory of mind. They don't have cause and effect. They're operating from very low in the, in the um, even below the limbic brain. What's recently been discovered, and this is Ruth Lannis' work, is that the, the part of the brain that fires off first in a trauma response is called the periaqueductal gray, or the PAG. And the PAG is almost at the level of the brainstem. This is a threat detector. This is a reptilian structure that is only about scanning for threat. And that's what sets off the amygdala in a trauma response. So we are not at talk therapy. We're just not doing talk therapy with a reptilian part of our brains. It's not, it doesn't happen. I want to ask you a little bit of a technical question, and then I want to give Ryan a, a chance to ask a question. Because um, what I found myself doing, um, and this is before I learned your work, but after I learned about the attachment work, is basically um, I only see myself as doing emotional regulation mm-hmm. in therapy. Mm-hmm. And by by that, what I what I mean is, um, I try to be as attuned as, as I can to the person. And because what I'm doing is usually short-term work, and I realize that there's a lot of limitations to that, um, my my I offer someone an experience, and then I try to guide us through the experience that we have a win, and we as a group feel good about it. So I do groups at you know um, mm. at the at this at the treatment center the, at the um, inpatient psych center, and we'll do a game called the number game where you count to 10 and I say, this is going to be, um, stressful. Mm-hmm. You don't know the rules and we're all going to learn the rules together. And once we learn the rules, then it'll be over. And I'm very, very aware of when so-and-so goes, like we stop, mm-hmm. we process that. And we, and I'm looking not for a cognitive understanding, but for him to feel felt. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For, 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 for the affect on his face to change and for him to feel more comfortable moving forward. Because what, what I'm assuming is he goes into this place where he feels angry and he, for whatever reason, cannot handle that. Mm-hmm. And so once I see, okay, hey, man, what's going on? You're getting frustrated. Yeah, this is frustrating, right? Like no one knows the rules. And I'm over here being a jerk to you, not telling telling you what the rules are. Exactly. Yeah. Man, look, I do not mean to frustrate you. This whole purpose is to take one step into this frustration and be able to deal with it as as a group. Like, how does is that something that you feel like you, you can do? Do we need to take a break? Yada yada yada. I can I can go on. I mean, you're not really a jerk, you know, you're just doing your job. Okay. And then we go a little bit further. Um and to me, that's what therapy is now. Mm-hmm. It is, um, of course, using language because that's part of what, what we have. Right. But I'm not looking right. for you to say, these are my coping skills. I'm looking for you to have the experience of being frustrated 
being able to rely on a group or on me in some small way than us moving forward with this task. Um, and I guess my question is for most of the therapists that you um, see, have, have, have they made that shift or do you feel like most therapists are still trying to convince people? Cause I'm in, I'm in a very small world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see the people that I go to work with. 95% of them are clients anyway. Mm-hmm. I feel like you have a, a broader view of, of the field. Um, do you feel like people are making that shift? Cause that to me feels like the shift that people like Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk and yourself are making is how can we look at affect regulation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in relationship? I think Stephen Porges talks about this. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. Not a therapist, so he doesn't have he doesn't have the in the trenches view of this, but he does talk about that. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, I I think if anybody works with the population for long that you and I work with, and I assume Ryan's worked with as well, and doesn't get that affect regulation is the key. I remember uh, after learning about after having practice neurofeedback for five or 10, maybe even 10 years, I was at a conference with Alan Shore and Bessel and a few other, the, you know, the celebrity elite um, uh, therapists. And uh, Bessel in his talk said, if anybody in this audience, 600 people at Harvard, he said, if anybody in this audience um, has, knows about how to regulate affect, uh, they have the keys to the kingdom. Okay. So I'm sitting there, and I know I have the keys to the kingdom. But I can't stand up. This is a completely naive audience who's come to see the celebrities and say anything to him. So it's, it's, it's years later. It was in 2008, I think, that Bessel and I met. Uh, and he sat still long enough to listen, and he was captured. He was captured by the, the, the drawings in the book and how the drawings change in three months' time, and you just watch. A, if you put that one, that graphic up, yeah. too, will help. Yeah, I have to put that up on the show notes. Yeah. But basically, the, guy, the kid goes from stick figures to, um, you know, full family. Mm-hmm. You know, people and have the fa- fingers. And, and the kid, in interestingly in that, Jordan, the kid, the patient – it draws himself as the um, as the small kid in the first two drawings, and he is the he is the older brother of the uh, in the in the family, and he gains that status in the drawing after three months, and I'm assuming in his in his sense of being as well. Something else I don't I don't know if you've um, looked any at. Um, the work coming out of TCU, Texas Christian University. Uh, tell me. They, they, they have a whole program model called uh, TBR, TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention. Mm-hmm. They, they show some of the same effects that you do, you know, massive increases in IQ, in vocabulary. Um, and they work with kids who have predom- predominantly been adopted or in the um, mm-hmm. welfare system. Mm-hmm. But, what, but what they do is... Um, they have camps that they run and each kid has a buddy and they train every single buddy who's usually a college student, you know, who's free for the summer on how to work with these kids. Um, and I, I thought to myself, man, they do really good work. 
it is obvious that these kids do really well and they're able to do this. And I, I, I love what they taught me. Um, I thought it was great, but they're able to do this first because these kids are smaller, I think, than these college students <laughs> are. Helps. And they okay. each get a buddy plus a therapist. Right. So the amount of resources that they're having to use compared to, you know, one person with the, with EEG or right. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just completely different, right? If you can take a kid for the summer and just surround him in the most, you know, uh, perfect ideal in environment, that's, that's great. But the amount of resources for that is just immense. Well, and I would say that I would say, I would say also that, um, even when, you know, uh, uh, adopted kids end up in wonderful families yeah. that, that surround them with love. Yeah. They, they, and, and we think, you know, we've all, I've been in the attachment field for ever and ever. It is sort of thought that they turned against this family and there are all kinds of psychological reasons given for it. But if you don't have that system that we're just talking about, the self other system, the default mode network, default mode just means what does the brain look like off task? Off task, you should be engaged with yourself and the other. That's not happening. All this is scanning for threat and they find it. Because, you know, the, the, the world is actually, can, we could always interpret the world as threat. You know, I mean, it's, that's not hard. And if you're primed that way, then even the most loving family fails these kids. And in fact, in Bessel's study where kids did get better, they just didn't stay better in 20 sessions. So he was looking, all of the parents and the kids want to do more neurofeedback, but they had 20 sessions. Uh, they got better, but, um, uh, you know, with they were all, his whole sample is adopted kids with, so you, as much as you can, take the parent variable out of it you know, for the reason for the kid being so stressed. They just don't, they have poorly organized brains yeah. Um, yeah. At, at every level of the, of the brain. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that to me was also interesting about the, the TCU folks was, and they very much acknowledged that. And you, and you could see um, the foster parents who had this ideal, which mm-hmm. was, <laughs> Um, naive and also so, you know, hopeful mm-hmm. that they're adopting these children mm-hmm. into loving homes where they have basically all the things that, that the kids actually need, right? Like mm-hmm. you have food, you have water, you have shelter, you have people who want to care about you. Um, and I absolutely think, you know, that neurofeedback would be really helpful for these kids as well. But the parents also gained new tools in relating to these kids. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that that was just so powerful. And I think that the way that the world is going, therapists would only be more and more called and pushed to treat these people. And I, I'm a little bit, not annoyed, but frustrated because I don't feel like we're given the tools. <laughs> and Ryan and I have had long conversations about that where we're thrown into these situations. And Ryan, I mean, you should talk a little bit about where, where you work, Ryan. Yeah, um, because I feel like we work in these fields and then we're called to do things that we can't humanly do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that actually kind of leads into the question I was going to ask, because um, right.
Your your audio cut out. Oh, it cut out. There, there. You go. Am I good? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, right now, I'm at a outpatient community mental health center. Um, but a lot of what we're talking about right now reminds me the first job that I had out of grad school was with an adoption agency doing family preservation work, um, you know, very trauma responses all the time. And I, I particularly am remembering this first instance where uh, it was the first time that I saw someone have a completely dissociated response. They were tearing up a house. Um, mm-hmm. Eyes had rolled back mm-hmm. in their head, just mm-hmm. everything. And I remember that first realization of, I do not have whatever this family needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only did I not have it as a beginning therapist, no one in this agency had it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was nothing like what we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there was, but nobody knew about it. Well, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. It no one knew about it and no one knew that they didn't know about it. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so I guess one of the thoughts that I have is um, even something something as simple as now that we are starting to know what we know. Um, lower income families that I work with, neurofeedback is expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you imagine are some of the structures that need to be put into place or adjusted or things like that to kind of nudge our field into actually equipping therapists with the things that they need to help people? Oh, well, that's a good question. I mean, that's what a reason that I wrote the book, right? And it is a little bit out in front of what, I mean, when I wrote the book, people weren't talking about developmental trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? Now everybody's talking about developmental trauma. So hopefully uh, a lot of people will talk about neurofeedback too. It's becoming more and more, it's out there more and more. Yeah. Um, and I think that the consumer demand, as it were, that, um, that uh, adoptive parents, um, I mean, that video that I mentioned, if you can put it up for people to watch, it's just extraordinary to see the change in this kid. And parents get an idea that that can happen or they're in the study with Bessel and they see, they see the changes in their kid that they don't hold because they don't have enough, right? 20 sessions is not enough, right? It's not enough neurofeedback for anybody, just about anybody. It's not magic. It is training the brain toward its own regulation. And these brains are all turned towards survival. And that's it. I mean, if the parents don't serve what they think is their survival needs, this is what this is what you'll see. You know, one of the for the kids that I, the kid Carl that I talk about, this is a kid who, you know, who didn't like the idea that his adoptive mother was withholding uh, his snack, you know, and, and went after her with a two by four. And that's the kid I got. He was 11 years old when he came. And he was uncontrollable. And we did every bit of intensive attachment work that we could do 
And I took him to, uh, these are the days, I took him to Colorado to uh, work with Foster Klein, who was this genius in attachment work. It didn't matter. I mean, this kid had no way of, of putting together what was happening. Uh, and, you know, he ended up, he ended up in jail and he ended up abusing other people. You know, he did, he did his, his attachment disorder thing. Um, and it, I think it's getting to the point where people are seeing the limits of medication, the expenses of, and the, and the degradations of medication, the more and more evidence that neurofeedback works, um, uh, and that, uh, therapy as usual doesn't, that we may be getting to the critical point where, you know, adoption agencies won't open without a training room. You know, it just, it just won't make sense. Um, I have a, a, a colleague who is, um, has a different, a slightly different approach to neurofeedback, and she wants to do brain brightening with elders, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, have an open house and invite every every um, uh, system, you know, the, the people who run the systems at, 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 at every senior center, at every um, retirement facility, you know, at every assisted living, and, and make sure they all see that they're, all the others are invited. So you set up, say, oh, if they're going to get, their people are going to get, that's going to be a competitive advantage. But right now, it's only expensive. It's, it's, it, you know, you have to be altruistic or you have to have had an experience like I had where my brain just felt this in a, such a profound way that I couldn't turn away from it. I just had no, it wasn't even ethical. It wasn't in my being to turn away from knowing that this could happen. Mm-hmm. Not if it could happen for me, it, it was my startle response that I had lived with for you know, I started this when I was 50, um, uh, that I'd had that entire time and went away. It was extraordinary. So you know, how can you have that experience and, you know, and not mortgage your house, which is what I did, to buy one of the early systems? I just um, couldn't, I couldn't do it. You know? I couldn't do anything else. I think one of the things you said, I think in a previous podcast, was uh, schools, right? Having a part of the curriculum mm-hmm. which to me is like you know the low-hanging fruit right as if you can yeah. actually get it in. especially because and i don't know how i feel about this but it feels like there's a societal push for schools to do more and i know teachers and principals need something right that works with kids and most of what they do they feel like is ineffective mm-hmm. so i know teachers would be all about it um, and it's also a way to standardize care. I mean, I, I think I know a few, one or two therapists who are just worth their weight in gold. And I think that, you know, I know one or two of those out of <laughs> the people that I've met. Right, I know. And if you and if you go to a school, uh, they're probably not going to get that person because that person's going to want to charge more than that. <laughs> than, you know, <laughs> so a standard level of care um, that. You can say, yeah, we're going to do, you know, every, you know, kid in the sixth grade or whatever and just run them through. Um, my oh, first might be grade. Helpful. I don't know. First, first grade. grade. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this isn't, um, you know, the, the problem is, of course, these kids go back to bad neighborhoods or bad families or whatever. But it's still 
um, you know, it's the most cost-effective intervention. And it could be available to every kid because the, the the served kids who grab a lot of resources and aren't helped by any of the resources that they consume, by and large, um, are th- that's uh, that's one group that gets tra- training. But if all students get training, their reading scores go up, and they um, their uh, athletics get better, and they they get to be better chess players, and they can you know they they can do math more easily. You know, all of those things that are available to them as natural gifts, but that are, you know, unavailable to them because of, um, you know, the circumstance, the environmental circumstances, that you can really help a kid. Uh, and, and then the parents see it, and the parents, you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. School, and I did say that, so at the end of the book that this, uh, that schools are the natural place for this to happen. Um, it, it does take training, and and I uh, the, the eager system, which is a system that I use, is really a clinical system. And there have to be um, systems that are uh, more uh, – that you would use in a therapy office. The, there, But there are other systems where kids can learn the basics of this. Um, and, uh, what you see when their at, when their arousal goes down is you see more empathy. And so the whole movement in schools toward teaching kids social relational skills is deeply enhanced by affect regulation. Obviously those two things go together. You know, when you say, you look at Shore's title, affect regulation and the origin of self. Okay. There it is. There it is. That's exactly what we're talking about, that we can help kids and adults, um, even seniors, develop more of a sense of self and other in relationship. Uh, It doesn't matter the age. Mm. But it matters the age in terms of a child having a chance for a decent life and not getting going off into an institution or or residential care, or beating up his wife, or crashing a car. You know, it's just all of those things. Seth, uh, Steph Curry, uh, from what I understand, does neurofeedback. So if that doesn't, if that doesn't inspire people to do neurofeedback, I don't know what, what would. I mean, I don't know. I have to be a basketball fan, I guess, but yeah. You know. yeah. yeah. So. And more and more Olympic athletes are doing neurofeedback. Yeah, because well, because they know that, you know, that's where the, the, the leading edge is. Yeah, the leading edge, exactly. Exactly. Um, which dovetailed, and I have two more questions, and um, I want to let Ryan ask as many as he can, but where do, you feel like, where do you feel like the leading edge is for our field? You're, you're, you're obviously on one of the edges with neurofeedback, but, you know, if you were to say, man, I wish we could peel back the layer on this or know more about this part? Well, yeah, it's, it, there's sort of t- two parts. I mean, we can do a lot of perfecting of neurofeedback for sure. I mean, you know, we, haven't, we, ha- we don't know how to help, help everybody. Um, uh, but I am, you know, it's very much a lay person as somebody who never got – you know, I mean, if you did, you have training in the brain. 
in your in your uh, program? Uh, I did. It was minimal, but the guy who did it um, was a big fan of Peter Levine and had been through a lot of extra training and said, you know, we got to talk about this. And he did the whole hand model of the brain and, you know, oh, right. stuff. Yeah. Dan Siegel. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, there's more to it than that. And I guess for me, the cutting edge is what is the, is the, um, uh, interface how does looking, I'm, I'm doing a workshop in a couple of weeks in Atlanta and the title of this workshop is does neuroscience change everything? And it really does. When you have to start, when, when you really begin an encounter with the brain, you're, it's a different encounter than with the mind. And we have different sets of understandings. So when you look in, there's uh, Ruth Lanius has just recently mapped out this hyperlinkage between the periaqueductal gray and the amygdala. So this reptilian part of the the threat detector, you know, scanning the environment, it sets off the amygdala and then, you know, all hell breaks loose in the person and then in society. Um, she's just, she's just found that, right? That's just in the last year that we even know about this. Um, uh, and so um, uh, it's, and when I asked her, so how do people, how do you think people manage the fact that this linkage is, this is linked like this all the time? And she said, dissociation. And then I thought, well, okay, but we've all learned that dissociation is a defense. It's something where the, the mind does to ward off terrible feelings. That doesn't appear to be the case. So we look at these slides and we say, Oh, hyperlinkage here. This is a brain that's wired differently. If it's wired differently, is it, is it even salient anymore to call this um, a defense? It's a state of being of people who have been tormented like they have, you know, who have lived in this absence of, of a mother. Really? I was watching Jesus Christ Superstar. The NBC had an incredible version of this, if you like that opera. Um, this is an absolutely incredible version of it with John Legend as Christ. Oh, wow. And Dixon. I'm, I'm sold. Uh, <laughs> and Brandon, huh? I said I'm sold. Okay, yeah. and, Brand, and Brandon Dixon was Judas. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. But on the cross... Uh, um, the, and this is in the scripture, right? Jesus is saying, who is my mother? Where is my mother? And I'm just struck by it because here we are, we're talking about clinical and brain phenomenon that reveal motherlessness in the brain structure, right? And, and then we try to do something for that as psychotherapists and about that at the same time dreading the transferences that develop as a result of motherlessness, the borderline transference, you know, it's like, yikes, you know, or, or, uh, you know, so, so, um, so in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm sold on figuring out a new language or a new way of thinking about, or a more complete way of thinking about this brain mind interface. Um, and, 
I have taken, uh, I've been invited, was invited to go to Plum Village, um, yeah, which is a retreat center for Thich Nhat Hanh, a Zen uh, uh, master who's written a gazillion books on meditation and on peace and and um, you know, peace is the way. There's no way to peace. Peace is the way. You know that kind of thing. And he's he's brilliant and wonderful. And he had a stroke, and they asked if I would come and help him with neurofeedback. <laughs> so yeah, so that's absurd. That's absurd. <laughs> yeah, it, it. They were on. They got it. See these 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 monks understood that, that the brain couldn't work the way that neuroscience suggests it does um, in in the present uh, present term, and 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 he Ty uh, loved doing neurofeedback and he endorsed it as a new Dharma door. So you, oh, okay, so, so that's amazing. Um, and so, so the monks at Plum Village, no, this is not telling you the real story. The monks at Plum Village invited a bunch of us, and Ruth Lannis is one of them, to come to Plum Village for a neuroscience retreat. And we did a seven-day retreat on neuroscience, trauma, and uh, the sense of mind and, and brain. Okay. You asked me where the leading edge was, Jordan. I'm pretty sure that it makes you the next Buddha. Like, I'm pretty sure that's the next Buddha. It makes you... The next Buddha, oh my God, so glad to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Leading the way for t- for for a tie. That's what, that's, yeah. what, that's what you call him now? Like he's gone. Yeah, tie. Yeah. Tie is in meeting. So, I mean, this leads right into meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you had a very profound experience yourself. I've started meditating about two years now. Um, did you start meditating before or after you started doing neurofeedback? Oh, before. Before. Yeah. And it never was as, it never got you to the same state as the neurofeedback did. No, and it wouldn't now either. They're different. It's different. Um, but no, it never, it never, um, it, it never regulated effect at the level that I that I wanted or needed. I mean, I didn't know. Of right. course, you know, as you said earlier, you don't know what you don't know, and you know you know, I didn't. Um, I had no idea that I could feel what I was. I had no idea that I was feeling what I was feeling. Right. I lived in it. You know, it's like the does the fish know it's in water? You know, it's like. And you just live in that all the time. You have no idea that, you know, that there's another way to be. And the kids you're talking about and the people who are feeling suicidal, you know, they don't have an idea that there's another way to be. Um, so and can you talk about how they're different? You said meditation and the feedback are different. Well, um, meditation is really working or it's working at the level of mind and and quieting the mind chatter, right? It's just bringing that all, to doing that uh, to get quiet. And it's very difficult to do that in a system that's in a tumble, you know, that is t- torn apart inside itself. You know, it's just, it's not, suicides happen at retreat centers, you know, it's like, 
people expect that they can get to this place with meditation. They stop taking their meds. I go to a meditation center called IMS in uh, near me in uh, Barrie, Massachusetts. And in the instructions to to retreatants, it says, uh, going off your psychotropic medications while on retreat can be reason for dismissal from the retreat. So you can see that a number of people are hoping that that uh, meditation will in fact do what uh, that they what they hope it will reg- regulate effect, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so that retreat centers end up work, working with a lot of emotional crises that they're not prepared to work with. Mm-hmm. So okay. that that happens not infrequently. So you know, meditation worked at the level of the mind. And it doesn't quite get to the same, um, it doesn't affect the structures of the brain. Well, it might. It, it might, uh, Jordan. I'm just saying that if there's not enough structure to start with, you can't use it. it's going to be difficult to get it installed through the practice of the mind. Gotcha. You know, it's just it's just yeah. difficult to to do that. I don't th- I don't I doubt that that happens. Although, I think uh, you know coming from developmental trauma, I do think that people who have some fundamental relatedness and organization, uh, your child will grow up with a, a functioning brain because his parents will be functioning and provide him with that or her with that, and then you. You, you know, um, then can um, that child's or our lives be enhanced by meditation? No, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And you can enrich this circuitry probably. Um, there's a lot of evidence that um, when you do deep meditation, you go, you go, you also release the default mode network. It's only those people caught in the self-position in Buddhist talk, right, who are in the small self-position, I and me, that have a good organizing default mode network. So the adopted kid who didn't, who was in Romania and never got held and is a wreck and, and tearing apart his family doesn't have a default mode network functioning. If he gets better, and mostly that's going to be through neurofeedback, but all the other things that we do, because neurofeedback in a room on its own not going to do anything either. Not going to be helpful to this kid. There's got to be a person involved. And so when you, uh, so then they'll have a default mode network that you could find. And then if they got into meditation and spiritual and advanced spiritual practices, or into some forms of psychedelics, like MBM, uh, DMA, MDMA the default, default mode network goes down again. And there's no sense of self as different from everything else that exists in the world. You know, the, and that's Ty's teaching, the order of interbeing, that I am because you are. You know, that the, I breathe out, the trees breathe in. And we can't do it differently than that. We are all in one organism of, 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 a, of a order. You know, so, but, but in terms of meditation and developmental trauma, I don't even think that you're likely to get too many of people with that kind of problem have any capacity for this. Is that the same with like hypnosis or trance work, you think? 
Well, uh, a lot, I, you know, I haven't done a lot of trance work because I'm really trying to get people out of trances. Um, <laughs> but I think that, I think that the, um, uh, the, um, the, 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 it really is the, the reality for people with developmental trauma that the sense of self and other and regulating of emotions, which is what you were talking about earlier, is the preeminent thing. And I, I would be hesitant to take anybody with developmental trauma into any kind of trance work because they're already, it's attenuated enough being existing at all. And I think there's a, uh, an opportunity for um, some, some bad stuff to happen. But I'm not an expert in hypnosis. You know, we, we are taking the, but in brainwave terms, you are taking the brain into a state dominated by theta. It's a very slow brainwave. And if somebody goes into a trance, they are in this very s- slow, dreamy uh, uh, waveform. And the literature and neurofeedback suggests that when people close their eyes and they are engaged in making theta, which is not hypnosis per se, but in doing this with neurofeedback, they can have access to deep uh, memory. And, uh, and, and many people can resolve it using uh, going into these deep states. But some people can't. And um, so I don't tend to use that a lot. I tend to do eyes open training and keep people with me. And they know that I'm there and we're engaged in this thing together rather than this journey into the deep subconscious mind. Yeah. Hmm. I, um, I got trained in trance work and hypnosis, and we actually had the guy on. He's a wonderful creative therapist. Um, and I've come to a place now where I see it and I use it. And he's in Ericksonian. I don't know if you studied Milton Erickson's work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's in an Ericksonian of sorts. And I, I use it now just for, just for regulation, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, um, looking for the micro cues of where are they emotionally now? Um, how are they able to regulate now and how can I help them? And so that's part of why I asked that question is I think that, um, I think that there is some sort of overlap. I'm obviously not sure of where it is. Um, but to my mind, the genius of someone like Milton Erickson was not that he could put you in a trance, but mm-hmm. he, understand, he, he understood the um, automatic experiences that people have and how to lead them from one automatic experience that was painful and shame-producing to one that was um, liberating and showed you that you have more potential than you, than you thought that, that you did. That's the core of his work and in, in right. my work. And I think a lot of people today have missed that and just done weird crap um, without without realizing that that's the core of it. No, but I I agree with you. And, you know, then you're really, I think anything that helps somebody regulate their affective states is good therapy. DBT can be good therapy. The problem is that, you know, it's sort of like medicine. It's like, how, how do you, how does that, then teach the brain. Yeah. You know, how does that change the brain? How do you change the default mode network? How do you quiet down the 
periaqueductal gray. Well, I don't think you do it with skills training. And I don't think you can do it with trans work. Although I could be wrong. I could be wrong about both of them. I'm really open to that. And it, you know, but if people are guided as you are um, by, as I think the two of you are, by um, the, the idea that the goal of therapy is to help people regulate these states that they find themselves in, uh, that are self-destructive and destructive and terrible and painful and, you know, and anyone would want to kill themselves if they had to feel that for very long. You know, if you're on that page, you know, the, the, the finest work you can do is with helping the brain change itself. But everything we do to help soothe and to offer the other in some knowable way. I mean, I talk a lot about that in my in this workshop is that it's really important that the therapists find a way to make themselves known. You know, even with neurofeedbacks, neurofeedback takes a while to get to get in process. And I'm talking about long term work where there's transference stuff going on. That is vital that the therapist um, uh, not be passive, you know that 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 they're pretty active in the in the session because this is a mind that's barely grokking that you exist at all. So exist a lot, <laughs> right? Just the grokking. <laughs> yeah, they hardly get they're it right, that you clean, exist. Right? So they right. It's just probably not now. Probably an old-fashioned term. Anyway, um, have yeah. You, have you read Are the they, book? Huh? Have you read the uh, the uh, book? No. Stranger in a Strange Land. It's about a Martian who comes to Earth. Oh, 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 yes. No, yeah. but my, um, Sorry. yes, but I have heard Sorry. that that's where the term comes from. No, I have not. I mean, I wasn't, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, but, it, you know, it's the right word, right? It's yeah. a perfect word. It they is. just don't get that you're there. Well, you have to demonstrate that you're there. That's why I thought holding therapy was a hope for Carl. Because in a way, it's very hard to ignore that somebody has got you and that they're not going to let you go no matter what you do. Yeah. Right? No. But, that make, No. Wow. I see what you're saying now. That's, yeah. I mean, that's one element of it. The other thing that just blew my mind was when I went for my first training in neurofeedback, I was lear- learning about the work of Barry Sturman, and Barry Sturman was the guy who had the cats who raised their threshold to seizure and did the work with uh, people coming out off of the wait list at UCLA for neurosurgery. Uh, and uh, they were all able to, the cats and the epilepsy patients were all able to regulate their brains. But in between, there was the inevitable work with monkeys. And monkeys weren't terribly cooperative for having their uh, electrodes on, on their heads, and they'd pull them off. So to keep that from happening, they would uh, wrap them very tight. You know, they put them in a, in a restraint, essentially, in a, in a straitjacket kind of thing, a monkey straitjacket. And what they would see was that as soon as they gave in to the constraint, of the hold of the, you know, the surround, um, that they would make uh, more uh, slow wave, more re- relaxed waveform, more the waveform they were looking for them to, to teach them how to make. So I thought, oh my God, 
That's why holding therapy works, is that the nervous system comes up again, like, it really doesn't, but it, 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 to the extent that it does, it gives the nervous system a sense of constraint. A lot of the, of the terror of living with developmental trauma is that your nervous system goes on forever and ever. It never stops. So let me ask you a question, and this is a technical question, um, but Porges talks about how immobility is fundamentally you know, terrifying for mammals. And that's often when we will dissociate is when there's some sense of immobility. And that's why we build structures to protect us so that we can be immobile in a way that is safe. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how much of that is also going on for these monkeys in that sense of, yeah, I am, I am now forced into immobilization. And so there is that natural sort of dissociation that happens because they're also mammals. Right. I, I don't know, but you know, there's a, the story that I use in the book. I, was, I, don't, I, 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 I think what they were looking at was SMR. So that's 12 to 15 hertz. That wouldn't be, that's not the kind of waveform you'd see in dissociation. And I've never heard, but you know, this circuitry is very likely to be in the higher mammals too. But in prey animals like horses, I use the, I use the uh, example in the book of using constraint to the nervous system to, to uh, quiet reactivity because the prey animal is ready to flee and you get on that, that back and they're going to bite you or kick or buck or whatever to get you off because of, and I'm thinking of obviously the horse, is that the mountain lion is going to jump on their back. So to have a rider go on the back, that's a mountain lion, right? That's the whole priming of that nervous system. So one method that's used is, is creating more and more constraint to the, and the animal then is immobilized, um, but is not hurt. And that, that is a, then is disconnected between being immobilized and being, you know, killed, essentially. And so that's that's also rider, part of what they do at TCU, they have um, hamburger days where if, you, if a kid is acting out and they're grumpy, they say, do you need a hamburger sandwich? And uh-huh, they uh-huh. And put them on a pad and then they'll pile up lettuce and tomatoes, which uh-huh. are pillows, and they'll uh-huh. lay on top of the kid. Uh-huh. Um, I'm going to talk about the need for sensory for the nervous system in order to regulate itself. Yes, uh, exactly. Touch, yeah. Can you imagine that uh, being a baby, you've just born and you're put in a crib? Right. When you have and, been, and you've got, and there are fifty-five other babies, and you get fed, you know, five times a day, and that's it, right? You get changed, but the rest of the time you're in a bed. Chinese or uh, kids from China who were adopted, um, up to a certain point, most of these uh, babies were um, two in a crib. Wow. And a lot of American parents who were going to adopt put up a, a thought of this as, as bad care. But that's probably the better, the better option for Much these better. kids. Yeah. It was better. Separated. They, had, they had human company. Right. Yeah. Right. And so the, the data on adopted Chinese orphans got worse after that, uh, after the orphanages adopted the wish of the, of the parents to be, you know, so it was, you know, it's the kind of thing we can get into. So, but that's how important it is to have the other. And, you know, we, 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 we wrap up our babies. 
we hold them closely. We rock them and we talk to them. And we're, you're probably doing that already. You know, you're already talking to your, your kid will know your voice, you know? Yeah. So um, that, that's not the experience of the kids that are in so much trouble. And so we need to provide that in every way we can think about um, that is humane and loving and, and um, has a reason to be. And I think that wrapping a kid or the hamburger day is exact. We, I mean, we see it. The kids, the kids calm down. The monkeys calm down. Yeah. Well, we're bumping up against the end of our time. I've so appreciated this. Um, Ryan, I wanted you to have a chance to ask another question before we close it up. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the, one of the things that I'm wondering said i think the the brain the understanding of the brain that i got in my program was very very minimal mm -hmm. um, and i think that that's a lot of the experiences that uh, therapists have or at least just from training it itself obviously we learn things as we go on what would you say if you had to put into terms, this is the one thing that I think every therapist should hold with them, should know, but maybe they don't. Whether it's a big thing, small thing, what's the, the one thing that you wish every therapist knew? Um, that, that they come to understand the reality of brain plasticity and not just use it as a term, but to figure out how to help the brain learn its own regulation. That's the single most important thing. And if that isn't neurofeedback in five years from now, I'm great with that. All I care about is that we focus on how to help people who have not had good parents, who have not had any opportunity for organizing their brains, to organize their brains and regulate affect. And that neuroplasticity is possible. It's possible throughout the lifespan. And it's made most possible with neurofeedback. Yeah. I think the thing about neurofeedback that makes me so excited is as I've studied this, the science of learning, what humans can learn is incredible. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wonderful there's a book out that I watched the, the video for because I didn't have time to read it called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Mm -hmm. um, and he talks about how humans can learn, how we have this intuitive knowledge about things, and that intuitive knowledge is based off of learning. And humans can learn like almost anything. But what we need is we need clear and relatively fast feedback. Mm-hmm. And once we get that, then our ability to learn whatever it is skyrockets. That's right. Right. And I think the thing about neurofeedback that intrigues me so much is it seems to provide really clear, really concise feedback on exactly what you want to know. That's right. You know, it's I, a mirror. It's a, it, is a, it is a very, very clear mirror. Or at least the clear, the clearest mirror that I've seen. Right, so, that we have so we have so far, yeah. Yeah, um, which me to me makes it really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
So oh, it's fascinating. Believe me, I um, it's just um, it's fascinating to work at this level with people. Just amazing. Yeah. Well, uh, is there anything else you want to say? Anything else? Like, man, I want people to know this before I head out. Oh, um, that's a long list. No, I think (laughs) we've covered this uh, topic. And, you know, um, uh, I I write about as much as I knew of and and up till April to that, well, up until uh, early in 2014 is in the book. And so, you know, that's um, available to people and hopefully accessible and readable. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it I was, enjoyed it. I have too. And I'm sure I could talk to you for another hour and a half, but I will let you go. Right, right. Okay. right. You, you probably couldn't because I probably wouldn't be here, but I really <laughs> have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it a great deal. I've, I've enjoyed meeting both of you, and I appreciate you inviting me on. Awesome. So. Well, thank you. Okay, I hope to see you one day in the neurofeedback land. I hope right. so too. I hope so too. Okay, take care. Will do. Right. Bye.